Hebrews chapter 12, we'll be looking at the first three verses. And I want to start just by reading the passage. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostilities by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Every four years, uh, millions of people turn on their televisions to watch the Olympics. And we watch the Olympics because the people there are really good at what they do. They've spent years training, working hard, dedicating their lives to the perfection of one sport. Getting into the Olympics isn't easy. One Olympic trainer said, if you want to be in the Olympics, you have a better chance of getting struck by lightning twice than getting into the Olympics. And it's an old game. The Olympics have been going on since before the time of Christ. Around 700 BC is when they first started. Athletic games were a big part of Greek and Roman society. The Olympians of that day, like today, they ran races. They competed in boxing, jumping, wrestling, and another sport called pancration, which the best I can tell is a mixture of boxing and wrestling. In the Isthmus of southern Greece is a little town that you guys have heard of called Corinth. And Corinth was the site of another set of games called the Isthmian Games. And they would meet every two years. And men from around the empire would come together to compete. And with them would come thousands and thousands of spectators. There's actually historical records where they'd have to build and bring in extra tents so they'd all have a place to stay. But unlike today, they weren't competing for first, second, and third place. These games were a zero-sum game. You either won or you lost. They didn't give a trophy for participating. And for these athletes, losing was not a viable option. To lose was disgraceful. It was dishonoring. It was unthinkable. And athletes would push themselves to the extreme. They would push themselves even to the point of death so they could avoid losing. Philo, the Greek philosopher, wrote about this. And he said, I know wrestlers who persevere out of love for honor. When their bodies are giving up and they keep drawing breath and struggling on spirit alone, among these competitors, death for the sake of an olive crown is glorious. They were willing to set aside their comfort, their lives, the daily pleasures of life, to endure months and years of grueling training for just a single opportunity to wear a crown made out of olive branches. Because with that crown came glory and honor. And it's these games that Paul uses as an illustration of the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. He's using the games to illustrate your Christian life. He describes the Christian life as a race, where everyone is competing to get to the finish line, to get a crown, not a crown of royalty, but the crown of a conqueror, the crown of one who overcomes. 1 Corinthians 9.25, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Peter calls the crown a crown of glory. And our race that we're running in the Christian life is not competing against the person sitting next to you. It's not to see who can get to the finish line first. Our race is one of endurance. Who can overcome? Who can get to the end and receive that imperishable crown? And Paul's day to quit the race was worse than losing. If you gave up in the middle of the game, that was far worse than losing. 
Because if you gave up, you didn't just go home in disgrace. You actually got whipped for quitting. In the book of Hebrews, the writer, who I believe is Paul, is also encouraging his readers not to quit. He's telling them, don't give up. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God will keep his promises. But you need to endure. You need to stay in the race. Don't give up. Because there were some people who had professed Christ, but were thinking about walking away. Why does he need to give them this encouragement? We all know that once the Lord saves someone, his promises are faithful. Why why does he need to encourage them this way? Why does he need to tell them, don't give up? Well, I think you already know the answer. This race is difficult. This is a hard race. In our passage this morning, he's also using an illustration of a race. If you look at verse 1 at the end of the verse, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The term race here is the word agon, from which we get our word agony. Race refers to agonizing. It describes a battle, a fierce competition, a contest, a race. It involves struggle. It involves pain. It involves suffering. And the idea describes a person agonizing to reach a goal. And here in Hebrews 12, he uses the term to describe the Christian life as a foot race. A race in which the Christian is to agonize to reach that goal. And that brings us to a question, what's the goal? What's the goal of the Christian life? Christ-likeness, to be like Christ. Romans 8, 29 says we have been predestined to be conformed to his image. Ephesians 5 says that Christ came so that we would be holy and blameless, just as Christ is holy and blameless. John in 1 John 3 says that the one who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure, just as Christ is pure. The Christian life is a race for sanctification. It's a race for holiness, so that when Christ returns, we will be holy and blameless. And we will be a spotless bride. And like in the ancient games, failure for us is not an option. Hebrews 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Without sanctification, you don't get the crown. If God is not perfecting and making you holy, you will not receive the crown. So, what are the secrets to winning this race? How do I win this race? How do I make sure I'm going to receive the crown, that I'm going to make it to the end? In Hebrews 12, 1-3, you're going to see four secrets to winning the race of sanctification. Four secrets for winning the race of sanctification. Now, I want to start here by saying, when I say secrets, I am not becoming a Gnostic on you. I am not saying that I have some special super secret knowledge that I'm going to convey to you. That's not what I'm saying at all. I call them secrets only because these are things that are clearly revealed in Scripture, but we either don't know them or we forget them. And we don't apply them. So let's begin with the first secret to winning the race of sanctification. The first secret... Remember you are not alone. Remember that you are not alone. Runners in a marathon don't run by themselves. That's a really boring race to watch. Some guy just running by himself. In any race, there are at least two runners. Sometimes they run against dozens of people. And in the race for sanctification, you do not run alone. Even if sometimes it feels like you do. And in the short time that I've been doing biblical counseling, it has never ceased to surprise me how people think that they are the only person in the church that is struggling with sin. They confess that they feel alone. Nobody knows what I'm going through. No one could possibly understand because they've never gone through this or they're not going through it. They think everyone else in the church is doing just fine. 
No one else in the church has struggles. No one else in the church deals with serious temptations. Everyone else's life is just perfect and holy. In a church full of sinners, they feel alone and isolated because they think they're the only ones struggling with sin. And if that's you, I have some good news for you. You're not alone. The writer of the Hebrews wants to make that point abundantly clear. Look at verse 1. He says, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. The term cloud here refers to an actual cloud, the kind of cloud you would see in the sky, and that's how it's predominantly used. This is the only time in the New Testament it's used in any other way. Here it's used figuratively, and it refers to a numberless throng. You would say a, a dense crowd that is so big it can't be counted. A multitude. Verse 1 says, you are surrounded by a massive crowd of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, to find that out, we need to go back to the beginning of the verse. He begins the verse with the word, therefore. That could be translated as, for that very reason. And it points us back to the previous chapter. What's in Hebrews 11? It's the hall of heroes. Heroes of the faith. Now, some commentators have looked at this, and they said, well, you know, he's using a racing metaphor. So this crowd must be the people in the stands, you know, in the stadium. And the crowd refers to all the people watching you. I don't know if I like that interpretation, because that means all the people of Hebrews 11 are in heaven staring at me and watching everything I do. I, I don't think that works. I don't think there's any biblical evidence that the people in heaven are watching you other than God. So I don't think that works. So how are they witnesses? The term for witnesses means someone who testifies about something. It's a courtroom term. How are they witnesses? They're witnesses in the sense that they can testify to the struggle of living by faith. They too endured hardship. They too had to fight with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not a single one of them lived a perfect life. Go home this afternoon and read through Hebrews chapter 11. And then think about the people described there. And think about their lives. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer. He wasn't even allowed to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. Every single one of them had some sin, had some flaw. Without exception, all of them struggled with temptation, fell into sin, endured suffering, trials, and hardships. They are not the heroes of obedience. They're not the heroes of morality. They are not the heroes of perfection. They're the heroes of faith. You know who needs faith? Weak, helpless, sinful men who are utterly hopelessly dependent upon a great, holy, and sovereign God. That's who needs faith. And that's who they are. They are, in fact, witnesses. Their lives testify to the difficulty of walking by faith. Their lives give witness to the struggles of living a life that is pleasing to God. When the, light, when the Christian life becomes difficult, when it feels like you're overwhelmed, by the world, and you've lost all your hope. Remember that you're not alone. Others have gone before you. Others have tread in the same ground, fought the same battles with the same temptation, the same sin, and through faith they were more than conquerors. And you can be a conqueror too through faith. Not only have people entered and completed the race before you, but there are people sitting in this very room, running down the same path that you're running, dealing with the same temptation, the same sins, the same struggles you're having. There are other people in the church, you may not know who they are, but they are there, who are dealing with the same thing. If I can change the metaphor for a moment, the church is a hospital for the sick. Isn't it sad that we can all sit in a hospital and think to ourselves, I'm the only sick person in the entire hospital. 
Everyone else here is a physician. Let me tell you something. This is a hospital. And everyone in this hospital hospital is infected with a terminal illness called sin. And everyone in this hospital is striving and struggling against it. Everyone in this hospital is seeking relief from the ravages of sin. No, you're not alone in that. And we're all here because we have come to believe that there is only one great physician who can cure our illness. And that would be Christ. No, you are not alone. Yes, you may be struggling. Yes, you have to fight. Yes, God's going to ask you to endure difficulties and hardships. And it's so, so easy to get into a period of life where you're really struggling and then you slip into the pity party. No one here has done this. To begin thinking that God is being unfair to you. That he's abandoned you. He no longer cares. The trials and tribulations are just too much. And this is where our cloud of witnesses can be helpful again. If you go back up to chapter 11, look at verse 36. Compare your struggles with what the Hall of Heroes endured. Chapter 11, verse 36. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskin, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. My life looks like a cakewalk of comfort and ease compared to that. God hasn't asked me to endure 90% of that. By comparison, my life is one of comfort and ease. And so is yours. If you find yourself slipping into a pity party, you need to remember that you're not alone. Others have had the same struggles. Others have had worse struggles, have endured greater trials, and they not only endured them, but by faith, they were conquerors over those trials. First secret to sanctification. Remember that you're not alone. This is not a battle you fight on your own. Second secret to sanctification. Prepare to run. Remember, we're in a race. Back to the race metaphor. If you're going to run a marathon, a marathon is 26 miles, it takes a little bit of preparation If you told me, Frank, tomorrow morning you're running a marathon, I would laugh. No, I'm not. I'm going to get about half a mile in and it's over. It requires a lot of preparation. Just ask anyone here who has run a marathon or even a half a marathon. Athletes spend months, sometimes years, preparing for a marathon. And in biblical times, this was no different. Athletes who wanted to compete in the Olympian Games had to swear an oath and commit themselves to a difficult way of life. One ancient writer cautioned all young, aspiring athletes, these young guys who are just so eager, and he said, whoa, slow down. Consider what it takes to be an Olympian. Here's what he said. You say, I want to win at Olympia? Well, hold on a minute. Look what is involved both before and after. And only then... If it is to your advantage, begin the task. Does that remind you of what Jesus said? Count the cost. Think through this. Becoming an Olympic athlete requires sacrifice. It requires you to give up many of the things you enjoy. It requires that you forsake the things that your family and friends are still enjoying. And you can't enjoy them because you're pressing on towards a goal. Your goal is to win the race. The same writer goes on. If you do, if you decide you do want to do this, you will have to obey instructions. Eat according to regulations. Keep away from desserts. Exercise on a fixed schedule at definite hours in both heat and cold. You must not drink cold water, nor can you have a drink of wine whenever you want. You must hand yourself over to your coach exactly as you would to a doctor. That's the cost. You want to be an Olympic athlete? That's the price you have to pay. It's a life of self-denial. It's a life of strict discipline. 
And the writer of the Hebrews now compares your Christian life to that. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. The term lay aside refers to taking off a garment of clothing. You take the piece of clothing off and you lay it aside. In that day, when the athletes entered the stadium, they would enter in with these long, colorful, flowing robes. And right before they, they ran, right before the race, they would take these robes off, and they would run with next to nothing. And today, they do the same thing. If you watch the athletes, they come in in one thing, and by the time they get to the race, it's far less than what they were wearing before. And the clothing is designed to be as light as possible. It's designed not to inhibit their movement or interfere in any way. The writer of Hebrews says in verse 1, laying aside every encumbrance. Literally, laying aside every weight. Remove anything that slows you down. There was an Olympic gold medalist who had won the medal one year. And he came back the next year, and he lost in the qualifications. He couldn't even qualify for the Olympics. Gold medalist. And they asked him, what happened? Why, didn't you, why couldn't you qualify? He said, well, I ate too much. I exercised too little. And so I took more weight in than what I should have had. And I couldn't qualify. If you're going to run a race, you want to take off all the extra weight. You don't run a race in a big, heavy fur coat. You don't run a long race in blue jeans. You wouldn't carry a big bag of books while you're trying to run a race. I love my books, but it's a bad idea. They just slow you down. It hinders your movement. It keeps you from winning the race. And like a physical race, there are things in your life that are slowing you down. That's what he's saying here. It's an encumbrance. It's weighing you down. It's preventing you from running the race of sanctification to your fullest potential. There are things that are distracting you, that are turning your attention away from the things of God. There are things that are tempting you to sin and leading you back into sin. Turn over to Matthew 5 real quick, because Jesus spoke about these encumbrances, these weights, when he was in the Sermon Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 29, he uses hyperbolic language. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He's not advocating self-mutilation. He's not really suggesting that you should rip off body parts. That's not his argument. But he is advocating ruthless amputation. Anything and everything, including your eyeball that leads you to sin, you are to get rid of. The eyeball is hyperbolic. He's saying you spare nothing. The Bible says sin doesn't come from within, so your eyeball isn't the problem. You are to remove all of it from your life with a ruthless efficiency. But you should spare no expense in dealing with these things. You have to be ruthless. If it draws your heart away from Christ, get rid of it. That could be a relationship. That could be a piece of electronics. That could be a hobby. That could be a job. Get rid of it. Immediately. Ruthlessly. Matthew 5, verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. I'm right-handed. If you cut my right hand off, I'm in trouble. But he says it's worth it. It's better for me to go through this entire life with no right hand than for me to go to hell. Get rid of it. Get it out of your presence. Get it out of your sight. Get it out of your life. Be done with it once and for all. You know how many people fall back into sin because they keep things in their life that they should have removed? How many times the pornography user goes back and looks at pornography 
because they refused to restrict their internet access. They refused to have some accountability. Or they do something even kind of just as silly. They keep their subscription to the sports magazine. That doesn't qualify in their mind for pornography. How many drunks go back to alcohol because they refuse to get rid of all the beer and all the liquor? There was one guy I was hearing about in counseling. He was, an al- he was a drunk. He was a drunkard. That was his sin. And he was trying to figure out why he kept falling back into it. And they went to his house and on the coffee table there were stacks of magazines about liquor. And that one's obvious, but we all have the same thing in our lives. We think, I can just hold on to this. I can just keep it. And then we say something really silly. We say something like, well, I have the spirit. I can handle it. I'm strong enough. No, you're not strong enough. But you are proud. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 lists off this long list of sins. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you hear the zero-sum game here? If you do these things, you will not finish the race. Failure in this race is deadly. And then he says this to them in verse 11. But such were some of you. You used to be those things. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You have become a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You have been liberated from your sin. And then the very next verse he tells them, so just do whatever you want and hang around the temptation as long as you want. No, that's not what he told them. Verse 18, flee immorality. Run. Get away from it. Don't stand there and think you can fight. He told the Romans, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Don't give your flesh an inch because it's going to take you a mile. Be ruthless with your flesh. Cut off every avenue that can lead you back to sin. Cut off everything that hinders your spiritual disciplines, that hinders your prayer life, that stops you from reading the Bible. Cut off everything that stops your family worship or keeps you from being able to attend church. Get rid of them. They're slowing you down. You're in a race for a zero-sum game. You don't have time for this. Get rid of it. You're going to lose. Like an athlete, you need to be disciplined. Get rid of all of it. How else can you prepare to run the race? Back in Hebrews 12. Look at verse 1 again. He says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You need to get rid of the things that hinder you, to slow you down. You need to get rid of the weights. And lay aside the sin which so easily entangles. He could have written this a different way. He could have said, lay aside any sin which easily entangles. He could have just made it a very broad statement. If you recognize you have some sin in your life, get rid of it. But that's not what he said. He didn't say, lay aside any sin. He said, lay aside the sin which so easily entangles. His statement surely includes all the sin in your life, but it's not a general statement. He's talking specifically about the sin in your life. He's referring specifically to sin that easily ensnares you. It's not enough just to get rid of the sins that cost you a lot. The former bank robber gets rid of robbery because he doesn't want to go to prison anymore. That's easy to get rid of those. We're talking about the sins that you want to hold on to for a little while. The sins that you find some temporary comfort and relief. 
the ones that really pull at your heartstrings, that it really hurts to say no to. These are the most difficult sins to deal with because they're the ones we're most inclined to. They fit our desires. And we all have sins that are especially tempting for us. For some people, it's alcohol. For other people, it's lying. For other people, it's sexual immorality. And the person who struggles with drunkenness may not have a temptation for lying. And vice versa. Each person is tempted and drawn to a specific sin according to that person's individual desires. And the writer of the Hebrew says, do away with those sins. Your pet sin, your favorite sin. Have nothing to do with them. Leaving sin in your life is kind of like running a race with your shoes untied. You're going to trip, you're going to fall, it's going to hurt, it's going to cause pain, and it's going to sap you of all of your energy and your desire to keep running. You won't be able to finish the race. At the end of the verse, he says, we are to run the race with endurance, not giving up, pressing on. We've already said this is a hard life. We've already said this is difficult. We're agonizing. And falling down and tripping over sin, having all the weight on you, you're tired, you're worn out. Where do you get the motivation for this? How do you stay motivated? How do you keep pressing on? The ancients had a way to keep runners motivated. In the ancient Olympics, races weren't conducted on a circular track. The track was a straight line. And a short race, you would run from point A to point B. A long race, you would run from A to B, back to A, back to B, and you just add laps. And the, the track was the length of the, the stadium. And at the end of the track, there was a pillar, a square pillar. And they would run down, and they would run around the pillar and come back. The pillar was called a scopas. Why did they put, put it there? They put it there so that the runner would have something to focus on. He would have a goal to run to. And the runner would fix his eyes on the pillar. And he would be completely focused on the pillar. He wouldn't be watching the other runners. He wouldn't be paying attention to anyone else around him. He would be focused on the pillar. And every now and then, they would take the crown that the winner would receive, and they would put the crown on top of the pillar. So that as he's running, if he gets tired and worn out, he can look up at the crown and get his motivation. This is the same word Paul used in Philippians 3.14. He said, I press on toward the goal, toward the scopos, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. I keep pressing forward to my goal. Writer in Hebrews 12 has a scopos for you to look at. He has something for you to keep your eye fixed on. Look at verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. This brings us to the third secret of sanctification. Get your focus right. Get your focus right. And of all the secrets of sanctification, this is the one that we most often look over. We're really good on number two. We're really good about reminding ourselves that I have to get rid of stuff, that I have to be sanctified, that I have to do all this work. We're really good at that. You come to church and you hear the pastor say, you need to be holy. You need to be dealing with your sin. You need to be getting rid of sin. And then we forget what basic repentance is. Basic repentance is I turn from sin and I turn to Christ. But instead of turning to Jesus, what we do is we turn to the proverbial mirror. And we begin looking at ourselves. Spending endless hours in introspection. Trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Thinking that somehow in and of ourselves, we have the power to be holy. 
Does it ever work? It just leaves the person feeling hopeless because they learn over and over and over again they can't do this. And so they end up hopeless and depressed. They lose their energy. They lose their drive. And they just kind of give up. I can't do this. Or some will stare at the law. Thinking the goal of the Christian life is merely to be obedient. And you can always spot these individuals by their language. They say things like, I must obey. I have to have my devotional life. I am not performing well. I am a failure. A few years ago, this was me. I was telling a brother in Christ about some of my struggles with sin. And after a few minutes of listening to me, he turned to me and said, Frank, I hear you talking a lot about what you're doing. I don't hear you say anything about Christ, though. Ouch. It was true, though. If you're looking to anything or to anyone for motivation in your Christian life other than Christ, you're going to fail. If your goal in sanctification is to do anything other than get to Christ, you're wrong. The law cannot liberate you from sin. Romans 8 said that clearly. All of your attempts at obedience will not prove that you are not a sinner. Your good works and your effort cannot liberate you from sin. Only Jesus can liberate you from sin. Only the heart and mind that is fixated on Christ and Christ alone will find lasting freedom from sin. The statement in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, if you translated that in a very wooden way, to look away from all else, it refers to having tunnel vision. To have a laser-like focus on one thing, to the exclusion of everything and everyone else. I'm not going to look at anything but Christ. Some of you are fixated on your performance. And you're looking at all the things you are doing and all the things you're not doing. Some of you might be fixated on your circumstances and you're looking at all the reasons why your life is so difficult. Some of you are fixated on what other people are doing. And you're spending all your time wondering why this person is doing that and why this person is doing that. If you want to win the race of sanctification, if you want to be able to say with Paul, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, you need to fix your gaze on Jesus. Make him the center of your life. Focus all of your life, all of your efforts, all of your desire on worshiping Christ. Don't read the Bible just so you can complete your Bible reading plan. Read the Bible to know the person of Christ. Don't pray in the morning so you can have that good feeling of, oh, I've had my devotional time this morning. Go into prayer because you want to commune and fellowship with a person. A person that you love. Before you engage in any activity, just ask a simple question. Does this bring me closer to Christ or push me further away? Does this help my relationship with him or does it hurt it? And if it brings you closer to Christ, do it. If it puts you further away from him or interferes with your relationship with him, get rid of that activity, whatever it is. Jesus is not a cherry on the top of your ice cream. He's not an addition to your life. He is your Christian life. This is why Paul said in Colossians 3.1, keep seeking the things above where Christ, is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The strength and the power to overcome sin, to keep fighting, to win the race, doesn't come from you. It doesn't come from the law. It comes from Christ. Make him the goal of your life. Make a relationship with him your greatest desire. And you will find the strength and the power to lay aside the encumbrances, to step away from the sin. Christ is everything. Notice in verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. 
He's the author and the perfecter. He's the one who started it, and he's the one who will finish it. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last, and he's everything in between. He is the means, and he is the end. And he is our primary example of how we win this race. We look to Christ and we fix our eyes on him because he is our greatest example. The heroes of chapter 11, while encouraging, all failed at some point. Every single one of them failed, without exception. But Jesus succeeded where all of them failed. First, he's the perfect example of an enduring struggle and pain. And notice verse 2 again. He says, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Like us, Jesus had a goal. He had something he was moving towards. He had a purpose in coming, in living his life. Some have said that this joy, the joy that was set before him, this goal that he had, his focus was on the glory that he would have after his resurrection. And that's what kept him going, that he would be glorified with the Father. And certainly Christ is exalted, and he should be exalted with the Father. That's certainly true. But that doesn't seem to fit with the person of Christ, does it? He endured the cross to serve himself. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. What's the end of that verse? And to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus had a purpose in coming to the world. His purpose was to save sinners, to make them holy and blameless, and to present them as a love gift to the Father. That was the joy that was set before him. That was the purpose for which the Father planned his coming, to obtain and to reach that goal. He endured the cross. The endurance described here isn't passive. It's not, well, I'll just kind of let this happen. This is an active, willful endurance. He could have called legions of angels to rescue him, but he didn't. He could have refused to endure the pain. He could have said, no, Father, I don't want to do this. And he could have gone right back to heaven before he went to the cross, but he didn't. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He endured the struggles and the hardships with his eye on the goal. The goal of reconciling you and me to the Father. The Christian life is a race for sanctification, and it will include hardship. It will include pain. The smiling preacher who said it's your best life now, he lied. It's not your best life now. It's your best life later when you get to heaven. Right now, you are in a race. You are agonizing. You are striving for a goal. And we tend to want to avoid suffering. We tend to want to try to avoid hardship. We say things like, well, if it hurts, it cannot be good. The avoidance of suffering and pain, seeking after a good feeling, is one of the chief causes of people running off into sin. People who want to avoid pain, go into drunkenness, drug use, lying, stealing, sexual sin, the list goes on. You'll rationalize all sorts of sin so you don't have to feel pain. If your goal is to avoid pain and suffering, you've got the wrong goal. That wasn't Christ's goal. Sometimes it needs to hurt. God uses hardships and suffering as a way to sanctify us. And by trying to avoid the hardships, by trying to avoid the suffering, we just bring more suffering because we refuse the correction. Hebrews 12, verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? His discipline is intended to bring about holiness, to bring about that very goal that you're seeking. He disciplines his children so that they can be holy. He disciplines because he's a loving father. Hebrews 12, verse 10. For they, speaking of earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. 
term discipline here just refers to the instruction or training given to a child. Children don't always enjoy discipline. All the parents in the room can say amen to that. God's training us, God is training us in holiness. And his means of sanctifying includes hardship, struggles, and pain. Hebrews 12, verse 11, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't try to avoid hardship. I'm not telling you to go look, after, look for it. But if it comes, endure. Jesus is our example. He endured pain and suffering and hardship. He suffered the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he did that so you could be reconciled with God. He had a goal. And he accomplished it. You have a race set before you. And your goal is to grow in Christ-likeness. And that includes the Father's loving discipline. By looking to Jesus, by getting your focus right, you can endure. You can face those trials and those sufferings. Because while the discipline is not fun, he could have asked for worse. Hebrews 12, verse 4, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He hasn't asked you to give everything for it. It could always be worse. Christ gave his life. He died a gruesome death for you. And if that's true, can you and I not endure a little bit of suffering? A little bit of discipline from a loving father? Second, he's the perfect example of how to endure public scorn. Look at verse 2 again. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Despising the shame can be translated as he disregarded the shame. You guys know this. The cross was the most shameful way to die in the ancient world. No one wanted to die on a cross. There was no glory or honor in it. It was the penalty for the worst of the worst. They wouldn't even crucify a Roman citizen. It was shameful. And they were turned into spectacles to be mocked to be ridiculed and insulted. When it says that he disregarded the shame, the, the term he uses means to consider something as being not important when compared to something else. Here's the idea. In this hand, he has the shame, the scorn, and the mocking ridicule of being crucified. On this side, he has the goal of redeeming sinners and reconciling you to the Father. And when he considered the goal of redeeming and reconciling sinners, he said the shame's not even worth considering. I'm more than happy to endure the shame if I can reach the goal. The shame of the cross is trivial. If you run this race, if you focus on Christ, if you're diligent in laying aside every encumbrance and every sin, if you run with all of your might, the world will mock you. You will be ridiculed. You will lose favor with men. And that should be okay with you. Because your eyes are focused on the goal. Your eye is focused on Christ. If you can't say that it's okay with you, you need to go home today and spend some more time looking to Jesus and getting to know him a little bit better. Third, The third reason you should keep your eye on Christ is at the end of verse 2. And he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You should keep your eye on Christ because he finished the race. He completed it. He did it perfectly. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. You want to know how to run the race? Look at the life of Christ. You want to know how to finish the race? Look at the life of Christ. And now that he has finished his race, he's seated at the right hand of God. He's at the side of power and authority of the Father. He had the power to overcome and to win the race. And now that power is available to you. Now he's there to give you strength so that you can finish the race. 
Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. When you go to Jesus and you say, Lord, I'm tempted, I'm struggling, he can honestly answer back and said, say, yeah, I've, I know, I've been there. I've been tempted before. He's merciful and compassionate. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he is pleading and interceding on your behalf. Romans 8, 34, Christ is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He intercedes to preserve, to keep you going, to keep you in the race, to give you strength, to give you endurance. And he intercedes for you when you fall, when you fail. 1 John 2, 1 says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Pictures of him as an attorney, a defense attorney, defending you. And he wins every case he takes. When you trip and fall in the middle of the race, Jesus is not the Pharisee that comes to you and tells you what a scoundrel you are. He is the merciful, compassionate high priest who's been tempted in every way that you are. And he pleads your case with the Father. He argues in your defense. You want to know how good Jesus is at pleading and arguing for his people? How good he is at pleading and arguing for you. Flip over Hebrews 7 real quick. We're going to look at one verse. Hebrews 7 verse 25. This is speaking of Jesus as the high priest. Hebrews 7 25. Therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save for how long? Until your next sin, until you fail again, until you fall again, until you figure out how to be obedient. No, God's inspired word said that Jesus is able to save forever. He's able to get you through to the end of the race. But you need to get your focus right. You need to get your focus onto Christ and off of you, off of your circumstances, off of your failures. And get your mind and your heart on Christ. That's the only way you're going to make it through this race. First, secret of sanctification. Remember, you're not alone. Second, prepare to run. Third, get your focus right. Fourth, and finally, replenish your strength. Replenish your strength. Christian life is not a short little sprint, it's a marathon. And in long races, runners will typically have little stations in the race where they will stop and they'll pick up like banana or water or some other fruit. And they do that because those small doses of nutrients provide valuable energy that keeps them going. It keeps them from growing weary and falling out of the race. And you need the same thing. You need to replenish your strength. Because you will grow weary. You will grow tired. Look at verse 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That phrase, the hostility by sinners against himself, is a reference to his saving work on the cross. In short, it's a, it's a reference to the gospel. This verse is unique. In the three verses that we've had so far, this is the only place where we find a command. Everything else has been an exhortation. Encouraging you to do this. Here he gives you a command. What's the command? For consider him. Consider him. Think about. Dwell on. Consider carefully. The gospel is not just for new believers. It's not just for people who are just now being converted. It's not just for those who are new in the faith. The gospel is the power of God and the salvation. It's vital for the new believer and it's vital for the mature believer. When you think on Christ, when you think on the gospel, what Christ has done for you, it puts your life in perspective. 
It puts our suffering into perspective. It gives us the right view of sin. It reminds us that our salvation is not dependent on us. This race will be finished. And if you're a believer in Christ, you will make it to the end. But it won't be because you are so righteous in and of yourself. But because he is so merciful and so compassionate and so wonderful. What are some reasons to consider the gospel daily? First one, consider the gospel after you sin. Don't dwell on your sin. Don't dwell on how horrible it is. Take your sin, confess it to the Lord, call it what it is, and then remember the gospel. Remember the promises that Jesus made to you in the New Testament. If you don't know the promises, look them up. He said, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sin. He said, you will always find mercy and compassion in Christ. Remember the gospel after you sin. Charles Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself. We need to remind ourselves every day of it because we sin every day. Considering the gospel will humble you. If there's any pride or self-righteousness in you, thinking on the gospel will drive it from you. Thinking on the gospel will make you more compassionate to other sinners because it will remind you what a sinner you are. It will remind you of all the times that you have failed, all the times that you have betrayed God, and the price that Jesus had to pay so that you could be forgiven. And if that is true of you, how could you not be compassionate to someone else? Remembering the gospel will help you drive sin from your life as you consider the immense price that Jesus had to pay for it. Your love for him will compel you to not want to sin anymore. Love for Jesus is the fuel that energizes all true sanctification. It's not a love for obedience. It's not a love for keeping the law. It's a love for Christ. And finally, considering the gospel will give you the strength and energy that you need. Notice at the end of verse 3, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You're going to get tired. You're going to need to recharge. And you do that by going back to the gospel over and over again. Look, I know my own heart. I know what I am. I know the darkness of my own heart. And the most discouraging, disheartening thing, the thing that saps energy from me more than anything else, is the thought that I need to get myself right with God. And it, it saps you because you know you can't. We know that if this were up to us, we would be lost. This race would be over before it began if it were up to us. But Christ died to save sinners. He did what you and I could not do. He paid the penalty that we owe, the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin that was rightly abiding on us. He paid for all of it. He reconciled us to a perfect and a holy God. And you would say, well, that's a wonderful gift. That's great. But he wasn't finished. He then takes his righteousness, his perfect obedience, and he applies it to you. And he gives you credit for his perfect life. And so when the Father looks on the believer, he doesn't see your sin-stained life. He sees the perfect, spotless life of Jesus Christ. And the Father looks upon you and he is pleased. And how is that applied to you? Do you get access to that by doing good works? Do you get access to that by keeping the law? It's applied to you simply by trusting in the promises that God has made. Have you done this? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you recognized your sin? Have you turned to him as a merciful and compassionate high priest? I beg you, if you have not, please do that this morning. Because the Bible says you are under God's wrath right now. And if you are in Christ, I would encourage you to utilize these four secrets of sanctification. Remember, you're not alone. Don't ever get into that trap of thinking you're the only one suffering. You're the only one who's fighting. You're not. 
And if you are suffering and you are struggling, please don't suffer in silence. Come and get some help. The church is here to help you. This is a hospital for sick people. And if you're sick, welcome. So are we. Secondly, prepare to run. Ruthlessly amputate sin and everything that leads you back to it. Get your focus right. Stop looking at yourself. Focus on Christ. Spend your life thinking on and dwelling on and worshiping Christ. And finally, replenish your strength. Go back to the gospel every day. Look at it, think on it, dwell on it, tell your friends about it, and renew your strength. Let's pray and ask the Father to help us to do that. Father, we thank you so much. Yes, we are called to a difficult life. Yes, the Christian life is a struggle, and there's pain, and there's suffering. Yes, we have to fight with sin. But Father, you didn't leave us alone in this world. You gave us other believers that can encourage and edify us and help us. You've given us, given us your spirit that we can be pure and holy. And most importantly, Father, you gave us Christ. He took our penalty. He bore our wrath. He's reconciled us to you. And because of him, we are called holy. We are called saints. And our obedience this morning is not because we want to earn our place with you. Our obedience this morning is because of Christ. Because we love him and we appreciate and we want to express our gratitude for what he has done for us. And we just ask that you would help us to look to him, to focus on Christ, and not ourselves and not on the law. And we ask this in his name. Amen.